Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Uh, yes, indeed. Welcome back to What on Earth. My name is James Scotland. I'm the General Manager of Minerals, Energy and Supply Chain for the AI group. And joining me each episode uh, is my good friend and alerted colleague, Paul Hodgson, the Principal Consultant of Paul Hodgson Advisory. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. How are you? And of course, Tenet Reid, the Principal Advisor of the National Public Policy for AI Group. Hello, Tenet. G'day. Good to be here again. It's our last podcast of the year, so uh, that's come around fast. But it's a good time to start talking about where we're up to. Let's talk, let's talk about energy. Let's put energy back into the minerals and energy conversation. There's a lot been happening. Um, and I'll be interested to get your thoughts. It's just a few weeks since the Prime Minister announced that we will have a net zero carbon emission um, policy in place and we'll get there by 2050. And although he was widely criticised, uh, it seems to have been well received within Australia. But at the same time, we've seen lots of examples of business running headlong towards uh, a net zero carbon life. We see Sun Metal in Queensland. They're a sink refinery. Uh, they're the largest energy user of electricity in Queensland, 50 to $80 million per year. They use about 1.3 million megatons. And they've said, their owners have said, Arc Energy have said, that they are going to pay the fully renewable energy, go from 1.3 million megawatts of, I think I said tons before, megawatts of, energy, of electricity to full renewable energy by 2040, and I think they'll get there faster. They've already installed 1.2 million solar panels, 400 kilometres of cabling at 40 kilometres, and they're about to start building a wind farm to get them to full renewables by 2025. Unbelievable. Meanwhile, Agnew Gold in central WA, 1,000 kilometres from Perth, are all, have already uh, moved away from using millions of di- litres of diesel and big gas user every day to a solar farm, the first gold mine in the world to use a solar farm, and they're also heading towards a wind farm. So we're seeing big business moving towards it. Of course, Fortescue are always heading, grabbing the headlines. And so we're heading towards you know, green zinc, green hydrogen, green aluminium. Uh, in the minerals energy, in the minerals world, they're looking towards renewable energy. Why are they so far ahead of the public discussion, Paul? Do you, do you understand why? There's a couple of issues, James, I think, at play here. I think one, one is that particularly solar and wind with batteries now is, is not just in Australia, but in, in most parts of the world, you know, the, the lowest uh, cost of, cost of re- electricity. So we're starting to see people taking commercial decisions to actually invest in, in this from a cost perspective. Um, um, and it also, I guess, it becomes a controllable thing for a lot of companies uh, they've often had to rely on retailers and for other external providers uh, for their electricity. Um, they perhaps uh, feel that they can't control those costs. They've been going up um, over the medium term, um, and that's been, you know, hamper, hampering their business growth potentially, or, or or certainly squeezing their margins. I think for a lot of the, particularly, you're talking here about a couple of uh, uh, sort of metals, minerals processes. What what's also happening on the on the customer side of things? is that we're seeing large uh, companies uh, looking to 
starting to make, uh, I, I guess, points around buying greener or low emission uh, metals. Um, and we've seen a number of big contracts with, uh, with miners where um, companies like Tesla, for example, are, are saying, well, actually, we want a green uh, we want a green nickel or we want a green zinc or we want a green something. Um, and, and, and miners are then putting in place the capacity and minerals processors are putting in the capacity to, to meet those needs. Um, so, you know, for a company like uh, Sun Metals, um, there's an opportunity for them to, uh, to control their energy costs to actually go green. But, but on the upside as well, it's likely that green zinc will, will have a premium in the market, um, certainly into certain markets where they'll be able to, you know, perhaps extract a, a higher price uh, in the future. So, so it's starting to make a lot, a lot of sound commercial sense. Yeah, the, uh, the CEO of Arc Energy, the owners of Sun Metals, said that not only is this good for the environment, but that their customers are starting to look towards uh, green, green zinc. They, they need to get to net zero as well, so they want their suppliers, such as Arc, Arc Energy, to be uh, at, uh, at a green level. But that still comes down to a commercial decision. They're saying that it actually is uh, the cost of electricity, uh, renewable electricity, is now matching that of traditional electricity. Where are we at with that, tenant? How is that looking? So it's a different story for different kinds of energy user and different kinds of energy use. Uh, the easiest thing at this point is for a, a large user to substitute a chunk of their supply on a financial basis, even which is even easier than, than a physical upgrade, uh, w with arrangements with renewable generators because yes for bulk megawatt hours if you don't particularly care when they are, uh, are being generated uh, solar and wind are by far cheaper than any other new source of electricity and increasingly they are cheaper than most existing sources of electricity but if you do care about when the power is being generated then the the cost uh, is higher and getting to 100% uh, uh, renewable electricity is a, is a complex thing. One set of complexities comes about if you as an individual user are trying to achieve that in a, in a larger system that is not yet uh, at or close to 100% renewables. And so there's a lot of accounting, uh, there's contractual arrangements, there's efforts to try to uh, match your piece of load with the um, outputs in different places at different times of many different assets that are clean. But then for managing a, a system that gets to 90%, 95%, 100% renewables, you have all the challenges of uh, matching a, a variable supply uh, with demand that varies in a different way. And Australia is, uh, despite the fact that we're starting from a, a largely a very emissions intensive place, we are transforming further and faster uh, to high renewables penetration than almost any other uh, electricity system in the world. Certainly uh, faster than any system that isn't interconnected to uh, a, a larger system that can help uh, ease and, and solve some of the challenges. Uh, and I myself am not sure whether 100% uh, renewables is the right answer or 
whether it is you know a very large share of renewables and a tail of something else, whether that is uh, nuclear, whether that is fossils with CCS, uh, it's it's um, it's certainly clear that the uh, the costs of a renewable energy system change very much depending on the context that the renewables are being installed into. They're cheapest when they're eating away at a largely fossil fueled system, uh, and then when it's uh, when you're you're getting to the last few percent of uh, overall electricity consumption, the the costs accelerate because of the additional storage and flexibility resources that you need. The other thing I'll say, because this is a, this is like a long answer, is that um, the story is also different when we're looking at energy writ large rather than just electricity. So there's an enormous amount of business energy use that is not currently electricity. It is uh, thermal energy from uh, burning gas uh, or uh, transportation thermal energy from burning uh, oil derivatives. And uh, dealing with that energy use is a, is a different kind of challenge. In the transport space, it looks like uh, light vehicle electrification powered largely by renewables will be um, very attractive. But the, the hard part at this point, economically hard part, is electrifying industrial or, or cleaning up industrial heat, uh, where uh, currently uh, the alternatives are quite expensive in many contexts. Some forms of electrification quite attractive. Uh, so where are we? I think we're making progress. Uh, but we we haven't got it all wrapped up yet. Yeah, let's come back to um, um, alternate energy sources such as CCS or and, and nuclear. Talking about sort of microgrids and and the standalone um, new renewable energy options, Caterpillar have announced that they're going to start offering from this quarter, the last quarter of 2021, 100% green hydrogen gensets uh, in North America and Europe. Uh, initially, it will be one to, uh, 1250 kilowatts with continuous prime or load management applications, but these sets will become available in Australia shortly thereafter, and they will have bigger gensets available soon thereafter as well. So they're sort of talking about you know hydrogen powering these various sites. Interestingly, they'll also say they will retrofit. So they'll take out the ones that are there now and put in these 100% green hydrogen. I guess there's two questions there. Where are we at with these sort of microgrids that stand alone and can power things? And is hydrogen going to be the answer for, for that type of thing? Obviously, Caterpillar believes it is. Paul, alternate? Oh, okay. Well, I, th I, th I think it's, it's, possibly, it's possibly be part of, part of the answer. I think there's going to be various... Uh, various applications and various technologies um, in an integrated system. They're going to work in various regions. Um, so obviously that's that's great that uh, green hydrogen gensets, but uh, wherever they're going to be deployed are going to have to be producing or having green hydrogen transported to them. Um, and so, um, so, you know, that will work in some areas and in other areas it won't. Um, there are there is quite a bit of work being done around microgrids um, and fully renewable microgrids. Uh, working with batteries and working with solar um, or wind um, as well. 
Um, but it really does depend on uh, on the load uh, that's required in that area. Um, tenant talked about that. You know, if you if you're uh, worried about the the time that you're going to be using, you're going to need more storage potentially if it's at night and you're and you're working off a solar array. Um, if you're really daytime use, uh, perhaps not so much of a challenge. Um, and it also that depends what else the microgrid is going to be doing. Is it going to be mobile fuels? Is it going to be uh, just electricity? Uh, are there other uses as well? So there's not really an easy answer, I don't think, on some of those. And and also the costs are jumping around. Some of them are still coming down quite a steep curve, or expected to come down a steep curve in terms of costs as we as we scale up technologies. Um, but I think you know the right answer is probably. Uh, uh, pushing forward on a number of fronts towards decarbonisation um, and and leaving everything on the table at this point um, is is probably a, a sound strategy. Now I've got a couple of extra thoughts on on hydrogen for power generation. So hydrogen is a very expensive fuel to be burning uh, to generate power, but uh, on the other hand, so is diesel, and in the right context. Uh, there is plenty of uh, use of diesel, whether because the, the place is remote or the need is for um, for backup uh, when uh, other systems fail. Now, uh, is hydrogen uh, an attractive fuel for those contexts? Maybe. You do have, you know, you've got to have the fuel, which means not just producing it, uh, but also storing it. If, you, if you're storing it for backup, uh, maintaining the the hydrogen um, is not cost free, uh, so you know it's it's going to be um, I think very site specific whether that makes sense. Looking at non remote systems, are we going to be using uh, hydrogen in the wider power system? I am uh, quite open to the idea that hydrogen peaking plants will be an important form of backup just in the way that gas-fired peaking plants are today. Uh, in the, uh, the, 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 the gas peakers that have been um, proposed or approved in the last year or so uh, all uh, make a, a, a big deal of being hydrogen ready and one of them is even contracting to meet uh, a, a chunk of its fuel needs with hydrogen. Uh, now, the, the Japanese National Energy Plan uh, foresees uh, hydrogen or green ammonia making up 1% of uh, Japan's electricity supply by 2030. Uh, that's by volume of energy produced, uh, not just capacity. And uh, they seem to have in mind, though, the use of hydrogen for baseload power, for uh, blending into the fuel mix of power plants that are on all the time. To me, that seems absolutely nuts uh, because there have got to be cheaper, clean options for um, for bulk power than that. Uh, now, maybe the situation is different for Japan. They certainly think that they are very renewables constrained by reason of land area. Uh, they don't so far think that offshore wind is going to transform uh, their um, electricity sector the way it's changing things in northern Europe. Uh, I, 
I would be surprised if they don't get a surprise on how uh, how much broader their energy options turn out to be. But right now, hydro- uh, Japan is thinking uh, big on hydrogen usage in power. We'll see. Well, they've 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 cut out nuclear, haven't they? They said that's not an option. Paul. Well, the, oh. I mean, I, th- I think Paul wants to come in, but the uh, the Japanese government's uh, twenty thirty uh, emissions targets and energy targets are contingent on, or that they in, intend to restart all of their uh, nuclear power plants. Now, whether socially that will be possible, uh, I don't know, but uh, they, they, they have uh, done pretty well in the last couple of elections. Um, so they may well carry through on those plans. Let's come back to uh, nuclear in a sec, because it's going to be interesting. Paul? Yeah, look, I, I just want to carry on from what uh, Tenon was saying there. I think just a couple of points come to mind for me. One, I think, is in this diesel uh, renewable hydrogen uh, alternative space, I think the one that I find really interesting is our national fuel security. So we we, we don't uh, satisfy our needs by of diesel of a long way. And in fact, our biggest energy imports are, are oil-based um, uh, uh, equivalents, including diesel. And we actually also subsidised diesel fuel rebate. We have a diesel fuel rebate scheme. And I noticed that Tuggy Forest during the week um, was calling for uh, the removal of that by 2025. And so the the idea of potentially reducing a subsidy on something that we import um, and actually replacing it with an incentive on something that we can actually uh, produce ourselves uh, sounds quite uh, Quite, quite a, a sound strategy, I guess. Uh, the other point I just wanted to make around um, hydrogen for energy is that, um, you know, if we're looking at the way the hydrogen sector is going in Australia, or hydrogen or ammonia, um, and particularly the green hydrogen, green ammonia for exports, uh, we're going to end up with a huge amount of renewable generation to power uh, those electrolyzers. And one of the, uh, and they will dwarf our national electricity market multiple times over so they had so you know one of the things i think is to look at is how the export sector can actually help support the domestic sector and whether that is directly um, through uh, diverting some of that renewable capacity for the export sector uh, electricity straight into the NEM at times or whether it's actually uh, whether storage is required whether some of the hydrogen could be used which might be expensive might be an expensive way but if it's a in case of glass break, you know, in case of emergency break glass kind of thing, um, we know that electricity can be very expensive at peak, really peak times. Um, and maybe it might make sense to actually have uh, a connection of, of the export hydrogen sector into the national electricity market. I couldn't agree more with that. And the, the, the difference that that could make, uh, if, we, if we do that, uh, if we're lucky enough to get that big export sector, uh, and we set things up right so that there could be a, a healthy economic relationship between the hydrogen export sector and the rest of the grid, uh, then we could cut the cost of delivered electricity quite a lot versus what it might otherwise be. CSIRO estimate 10 to $15 a megawatt hour reduction in a scenario where the uh, the hydrogen electrolysis sector is big and is doing demand response. Uh, versus uh, a, a scenario where there, there's no connection between them. 10 to $15 a megawatt hour, 
uh, compares to current wholesale electricity prices in the region of um, the, the futures for the next couple of years are in the region of $50 a megawatt hour. So that's, that's significant. That's worth, worth trying to achieve. Just bringing that, this part of the conversation to a close, and on our last podcast, I think, uh, Tenant, you were saying that there is a lot of competition worldwide for hydrogen, and our, our export market could get, we could find our, others might eat our lunch, I think was your, your comment. Uh, and last week, uh, I was talking to Louise McGrath, who was a recent um, attendee to this podcast, and she was telling me that the Germany love the idea of buying hydrogen from us. They love the, uh, the love of dealing with us. So where are we at in, with these export markets? Is it, how, how, how likely is it to happen? So we're doing well, I think, on uh, early relationship building, both with uh, European uh, potential markets and with uh, East Asian potential markets. The, uh, the things that are going a little more slowly are uh, the appearance of visible sign on the bottom line demand in those markets, uh, which uh, we're seeing more announcements, but it's, uh, it's, it's not going um, as fast as the developers on the supply side would like. Um, but also, we're not, uh, until recently at least, we haven't been going that fast on developing the, the, the demand side ourselves. Uh, now, we are starting to see some relevant announcements here in Australia as well, whether they be um, voluntary uh, or, or, or assisted um, efforts to blend a bit of hydrogen into bits of gas distribution networks. And recently, New South Wales has proposed a 10% hydrogen target uh, for 2030, which certainly would, would grow some significant um, demand and supply in tandem with each other. So I, I think uh, the, the, the biggest limiter on Australia's ambitions to be an export superpower is who's buying and how much. Uh, once uh, that is clearer, then we'll really get a chance to find out how we do stack up in practice versus Chile, versus Kenya, versus the UAE, uh, and the domestic production that may be possible in China uh, and other potential buyer economies. European energy think tanks uh, reckon that uh, transportation costs make uh, Australia not, not such a great place to get hydrogen from for European customers, uh, and that North Africa uh, is uh, is a more plausible um, uh, location to to get exported hydrogen from. But uh, there's a lot of political stability issues uh, that uh, North African countries have that we don't. So how all of that shakes out, we'll we'll, we'll again we'll wait and see. Cool. Yeah, and I just I think it's worth also mentioning that hydrogen's already produced um, anyway, and it's not really it's a, hydrogen for energy is the the new thing that we're looking at. But in terms of an industrial feedstock in the chemical sector, and particularly in things like ammonia, um, there is huge potential to create a demand. Because I agree with Tenant on that that a lot of this is coming from the supply side, and we're perhaps stuck in that typical chicken and egg scenario where 
where the supply side say, well, we need the markets to really drive our finance, you know, final investment decisions. And the markets say, well, if you can guarantee us the cost competitive price and, and that you can generate these volumes, then we can deliver it for you. And the, the supply side says, well, if you gave us the contract, we'd be able to invest in. So you end up in this kind of chicken and egg situation. But I think the chemical sector can drive a lot of the demand, particularly for green hydrogen. Um, in the, by replacing the methane-based hydrogen in the ammonia process. Um, and I, I can't remember the figures, but I saw some figures for Europe around just replacing um, hydrogen um, with, with a green hydrogen in chemical production in, in the UK. In Europe would be something like, I don't know whether it was five terawatt hours a, a year or something of electricity production. Um, so it was a very, very large, uh, large uh, amount of, um, of energy um, that could be driven just through the chemical sector uh, rather than looking at just the energy sector. The well, I certainly, I certainly agree that, that it doesn't immediately seem to make sense to export hydrogen all the way to to uh, Europe, but it wouldn't make sense to, to uh, dominate the Asian Pacific market, which is going to be a big market in, in years to come. These things, these are big questions, and these big questions get resolved by people putting time aside to think about it, which brings us to the idea of CRCs. Um, Paul, you know about CRCs. Can you just sort of explain how CRCs work in, in this, what they are, how, how it comes, comes about, and are we the leader in, in research in the world when it comes to uh, renewable energy? Um, look, Australia's got quite a good track record in, in the research behind renewable energy, um, most famously, I suspect, through the PV research at the University of New South Wales under Professor Martin Green, uh, where a number of his PhD, uh, PhD students went off and, and built um, uh, PV manufacturing businesses. Um, uh, and we do. We have quite significant research capability in Australia right across the energy energy sector. Um Cooperative research is one of the largest, one of the longest and largest uh, research industry uh, programs that we've had. They were started in the, the 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 last year, I think, of the Hawke government before Keating took over um, in 1991. They've been running pretty much ever since. Um, they generate a good return. Uh, uh, numerous uh, reviews have shown a really good return in the dollar, um, and, and they've actually. Um, it'd be really interesting, but if most a lot of people I talk to who are what you'd call entrepreneurial researchers, or they move between research environment and between industry, potentially they've started their own businesses. A lot of them um, got their PhDs or have were involved in CRCs over the last three decades. Um, so there's there's quite a considerable um, uh, weight of of this kind of technology trans transfers. Uh, stage that's so important that's been built out of the CRC program. The last few years, we've been fortunate to see a number of energy CRCs uh, get off the ground in Australia. It's probably been the dominant uh, uh, field over the last few years. We've had future battery industries. We've had future energy exports. We've had future fuels. We've had race for 2030. Uh, we've had uh, uh, one in um, heavy industry low emission transition. We've had uh, one actually in looking at uh, uh, mining communities and transitioning mining communities. Um, um, and we've had others such as iMove and uh, the future uh, uh, the food waste CRC as well that also look coming at it, uh, coming at the energy sector. 
Um, so there's been a lot going on, and you know there's a a, a bit underway for a, a a one in the green hydrogen uh, and, and ammonia space as well. So uh, watch this space. Lieutenant, have you got any thoughts about where we're sitting in terms of research? In the yeah, world? well, so there is good research done in Australia and uh, the incentives for collaboration between uh, industry and, and researchers are increasing and there were uh, announcements out of the federal government recently on uh, new approaches to uh, further stoking that. Um, but I think a really important point is that a lot of the innovation that we need globally in uh, reducing the cost and increasing the capability of clean approaches to uh, making the things that we need a lot of that innovation is not going to come from uh, research that takes place in a lab somewhere. It's going to come from learning by doing uh, and from doing a lot of doing. That is deploying uh, these technologies, deploying uh, hydrogen-based steel production, uh, deploying electrolyzers. We've already seen so much improvement come from deploying uh, lithium-ion batteries, uh, solar panels, wind turbines, uh, and that learning effect uh, as uh, supply chains get to grips with the um, the, the requirements of uh, scaling up supply, uh, manufacturers pull uh, waste and inefficiency out of their processes and their products. Uh, that produces enormous benefits. Uh, and so, yes, we need a, a strong research sector and a strong relationship between uh, business and academia, uh, but we also need to uh, get on and build stuff. Uh, and it's the, the building part of it that is more of a weak link in uh, Australia's decarbonisation policy arsenal at the moment. There are some bits of it, uh, but there's, a, there's more focus on the uh, early commercialisation and demonstration side of things, getting some, um, some initial examples of new technologies built rather than the pipeline of you know, doubling and doubling and doubling again the installed capacity that will deliver the bulk of the cost reductions. Yeah, it's it's great to hear places like Sun Metals and and the Agnew Gold Mine building massive renewable energy uh, plants, so they can just sort of see how that works. But equally, we're seeing that whereas batteries could be a big future, the energy intensity of mining critical minerals is out of proportion for for what we get for a battery, uh, and someone. CRCs or business are going to have to solve the problem of this energy intensity, is which might which might lead us on to this conversation of uh, carbon capture, capture or nuclear alternate energy sources. Where are we going with that? Uh, we've talked a lot about solar, wind, and hydrogen, but every now and then we start hearing about you know going back to C, um, CSS or CCS rather um, and nuclear. Who wants to have a chat about this? I have many thoughts, but uh, Paul, do you want to do you want to have a first crack? Um, look, I'm I'm uh, happy to have a chat. I mean, car 
carbon capture utilization and storage. And I think the utilization is the one I think is most interesting. If we look at carbon, carbon is not it's not it's not an evil thing, right? Um, it's actually in the atmosphere. Um, so the utilization of carbon, um, so capturing it, potentially putting it into building products, um, uh, using it in soil carbon, uh, using it in other other ways, I think is is something that's that's a really interesting thing. And there's quite a lot that's uh, being developed now, and a lot of uh, industry associations and others coming together around around this idea of of, of kind of utilizing carbon in clever ways that keeps it out of the atmosphere because it's uh, you know the climate change issue is is one of carbon in the atmosphere and we need to we, we need to not be putting carbon in the atmosphere but there's plenty of other places for it to go um, so i think um, this on that front i think the, the the move to sort of utilization of carbon i think is a is a is a really interesting one for me um, not so sure on the uh, the sort of the old sequestering one um, there's been um, a lot of opportunities to do that. It can be done in certain places and it is being done. Um, but uh, like a lot of uh, technologies, um, uh, it sometimes takes takes a while for the uh, the the, the uh, it, it to get to the stage where the hype perhaps um, uh, uh, becomes the reality. Um, on the nuclear front, um, you know, Australia's I think it's still against federal law you know to probably for us to even have a conversation about nuclear not quite but uh, but certainly it's uh it's it certainly would be a brave government i think to overturn that uh, we don't have a nuclear a sector of, of any scale in australia um, so the domestic um, supply chain to build up would be interesting the nuclear submarine decision for adelaide is an interesting one that's one to watch over the while i've already seen a few people saying well, now we're going to get nuclear submarines. We should actually restart that opportunity and look at how we could, off the back of that, we're going to need that capability. Um, but I think there's about 18 months or two years at least ahead of discussion around what nuclear submarines means for Australia, what might be done here and what might be just imported, um, including just uh, just having uh, US submarines uh, based here. Um, but there are people that are agitating for that nuclear conversation in Australia. It's obviously uh, a much more mature conversation in other countries that have nuclear um, and have had uh, large emission reductions based off of nuclear. Um, but it's uh, it's probably not one here that uh, you're likely to see get popular support during a federal election campaign that we've got coming up. Indeed. So I reckon um, on nuclear energy in Australia, Currently, we're nowhere at all, uh, and it would take a lot of effort to get us anywhere. Uh, if we look at current generation nuclear uh, electricity generation technology, it's not particularly attractive. Um, the, uh, the, the plants that are currently being built in a handful of advanced economies are all uh, stonkingly over their already eye-watering budgets and very late in delivery and, and generally a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and going through all of the social and political angst to get to uh, something like the Hinkley Point C contract in the UK, 
which uh, guarantees a, a an average electricity price of £92.50 per megawatt hour, which, depending on what the exchange rate is doing, is in the region of $150, $160 Australian per megawatt hour. Uh, for, for a generator that wants to be on all the time, doesn't seem like a lift that anybody is going to find worthwhile. But the, the big question mark is whether... Uh, newer technologies uh, for small modular reactors will uh, transform that cost picture. The hope is that uh, by making nuclear energy into something that is uh, manufacturable rather than every installation being a massive and unique capital works project, if you can just get uh, a reactor from the factory, uh, put it in a shipping container, basically, uh, and uh, port it out to wherever you need it, then the, the hope is that the costs will be dramatically reduced. Now, let's see. if I, I seem to be uh, saying nothing but, well, let's see uh, in this episode, but we really will have to see whether these hopes are, are met. There have been many waves of nuclear optimism before, Atoms for peace, too cheap to meter, uh, all sorts of um, uh, of hopes from the past, and they haven't exactly been realised. The electricity market that's emerging, where uh, sort of dirt cheap solar gobbles up the daytime market, um, is not one that is economically or physically friendly to nuclear energy, which, again... Physically and financially, those generators want to be running all the time. Now, uh, when we get to that cost inflation point above 90% renewable electricity, uh, maybe the economics uh, reverse, maybe it does become attractive for uh, a chunk of demand to be met through nuclear generators. Uh, The same might be true for um, carbon capture and storage incorporating electricity generation, although currently um, CCS for electricity looks like a dog with a lot of fleas. Uh, It looks like very unattractive to do that, which is why nobody is doing it unless, well, there is one project in uh, in Canada. Um, it's it's been a, a learning experience, uh, but nobody's really leapt in to follow that learning experience with with building more um, coal or or, or gas based uh, CCS electricity generation. Now, there's always the possibility that that turns around too, and uh, the the net power um, development of an alum cycle based. Uh, approach to um, CCS, which is very clever, potentially very exciting, uses, uh, it burns natural gas in a pure oxygen environment and uses uh, the resulting pure stream or nearly pure stream of carbon dioxide as the working medium for the generator, uh, for the turbine. So uh, potentially it is quite cheap to then capture and store the exhaust stream of carbon. Um, We'll see if their uh, hopes are realised as well. They recently uh, hit some important technical milestones for um, connecting to the wider grid. Uh, But the world is not short of technology enthusiasts with an exciting story to tell about how great their technology is going to be. 
And we really do need to make some judgments based on track record and what's ha- what is visibly happening now. And what's visibly happening now is that uh, wind and solar and batteries are kicking an awful lot of goals. Now, they probably can't kick all the goals, uh, but they're certainly going to be a big deal. And there's more of a question mark about uh, each of the potential technologies that fills in the, the margins, maybe very critical margins, uh, of our energy future. I think that see probably wraps up the, the conversation that we've had all year, isn't it? Where we, we, we know that the research is happening and some very good research and a whole lot of technology is happening. We know that globally it's heading in a particular direction in large parts of the globe. And we know the big organisations are doing massive things like we already heard in this episode. Likewise, there's a political aspect to this, which is still not completely resolved in Australia. So we don't know what's going to happen, do we? It's going to be an interesting year ahead. What do you think will happen in the year ahead? Anyone got any suggestions on what will happen? Will we see this become much clearer in the next 12 months or will we be still saying in 12 months' time, let's see what happens in this space? We're definitely still going to be saying that, uh, but maybe about (laughs) some different elements. One thing that's definitely going to happen in the coming year is uh, that we're going to have a federal election uh, by the end of May in 2022. And uh, whoever emerges victorious from that, and uh, I'm not brave enough to make any predictions about who or how, uh, but whoever does is going to have a a lot on their plate. Uh, They are going to need to try and land some big electricity reforms that are being worked on, particularly the capacity market concept uh, that's pretty controversial among stakeholders. Uh, And they will face a call to respond to uh, the call from the Glasgow Climate Pact for all nations to upgrade their 2030 emissions targets in the coming year. Uh, And for ministers to keep meeting Uh, over the rest of the decade to raise that ambition every year. Uh, So that's not a very comfortable message for any side of politics right now, but uh, that that call is going to to keep coming back. And we will get, the the last thing I'll reference is uh, in uh, February and March next year, we're going to get the rest of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's next major assessment report. We got that physical science report a couple of months ago. Uh, What is happening or likely to happen in terms of climate change itself? But what's coming next is the part on what are the impacts of the amount of change that's happening? And then what is the scientific understanding of our pathways for stopping it, uh, for mitigation? of climate change. And I think both of those blockbuster reports are going to have a big impact over time uh, on our political debate, on our um, expert and business debate, in just the same way that the last five uh, reports of the IPCC have have really structured our debates for years afterwards. Yeah, Paul, I've got a comment. I'll come back. But Paul, how about you? What's happening in the next 12 months? Yeah, well, look, I think it's been an interesting last 12 months. And I think one of the uh, the interesting things is has been really there's, I don't know, that there's a, a greater sense of ambition, I think, uh, that's coalesced this last year. Maybe it's been COP26. Maybe it was the net zero 
kind of pledges that started probably about a year ago or maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Um, but as as Tennant was saying, you know, it you know, let's wait and see or let's see how this goes. We we we're still in terms of the path through it. We 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 haven't we haven't got a lot more clarity about how to achieve it. So we've got the ambition that's that's coming, um, but there's lots of things that are still ifs, buts, and maybes on the way through. I think one of the clear things, and it, it was how you started today's discussion, James, around uh, Sun Metals, um, and that it's now commercial. Um, it really makes commercial sense to do some of these things. So as much as we talk about research and technologies and what might happen in the future, um, as Tennant has said, uh, you know, wind, solar and batteries, cheapest form of energy, there are some easily de deployable technologies now. Um, and that's the same at the business level as it is at the regional level, uh, the national level and the global level. There are some things we can do now to be reducing the pace of climate change. Um, and we can potentially then be working on the research and technology that's going to fill in some of those gaps uh, where some of those technologies don't now or increase the scale. Um, and I think just a, a flag waving for the unloved sibling of, uh, of, of global energy, which is energy efficiency. Um, so there's still lots of things we can do to reduce the amount of energy we use. Um, and again, at the same at the MESCA member level is actually look at what is the energy you're using? Are there ways of doing things smarter, um, you know, upgrading uh, machinery or equipment, looking at different sources uh, that, can, that can actually deliver energy efficiency? That's really uh, often goes missing when we're talking about alternative energy sources that, that is such, still so important and still so much that can be done. Yeah, a great point, a, a really good point. We started this podcast saying, let's talk about what on earth is going on and try and find some clarity in the chaos of the news uh, that comes pouring out. I don't know how well we've gone on that, but we certainly have been able to unpack uh, some of the issues and say we don't know the way forward, but this is the way to frame the thinking. I think we've had some good conversations this year. Um, we're heading towards Christmas. We won't uh, have another podcast until early February. I'm going to go down to the Gold Coast and uh, enjoy some time in the sun, although I hear it's going to rain a lot. What about you guys? Have you got a nice Christmas coming up? Just put a, a you know, a, a personal face on our conversations for a moment. I've got to uh, get busy on making the pudding. I was meant to make it this past Sunday and I hadn't got the right wine to, to soak the fruit in. So we're going to have a late stir up Sunday this weekend. Sounds like a good pudding, though. And Paul? Um, probably a pretty quiet Christmas this year, not really travelling anywhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. But it'll be nice. It's been another hectic year, um, probably uh, less different to 2020 the, than we might have expected at the beginning of 2021. Um, and, uh, yeah, I you know, hope... Hope everyone has a good break and um, hopefully 2020, 20, uh, 2022 is a, a year of uh, optimism and progress. It's going to be interesting to, uh, to see how it unfolds next year. I'm looking forward to it. Let's see if we can find some clarity in the chaos of what on earth is going on. At the beginning of this uh, podcast and every podcast, you hear our amazing Molly introduce the podcast. I wish her... You, Tennant, you, Paul, everyone, a Merry Christmas and talk to you in unbelievably 2022. Thanks for everything. See you in the distant future of, of 2022. Science fiction land. Yeah.
Thanks, James. Thanks, Tennant. Thanks, Molly. Best wishes, everyone.